Good morning, I'm Jaron. Join with me in our scripture reading today from Galatians chapter 2. Then after the 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them, we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Welcome to Disciples Church. It is good to see you this morning. My name is Jonathan Mosier. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so glad that you're with us. Glad that you made it through the fog of leftover turkey and potatoes and all that kind of stuff and woke up on a gray, rainy morning to make it out today to celebrate Advent together and to dive back into this series. So if you're not there already in your Bibles, if you could turn to Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. I've had a lot of opportunity over the years to go to various weddings, to uh, perform various wedding ceremonies and all those kinds of things, and to be involved in, in probably more weddings than most people my age have been involved in. I don't know how many, I've, I've lost count, but one of the things that I've noticed over the years when I've gone to weddings is that in some sense or another, you get a little bit of a taste of what's important to people by what's on display. So I've been to some weddings where it was a black tie affair, tuxedos, or at least a black suit with a black tie was expected, and, and, and that's what you wear to show a little bit of respect for the couple that's getting married, and you go to the event, and maybe they've got a live band, and they've got uh, a more formal sit-down dinner, and I've been to other weddings where uh, they took place in a barn or, or outside. I've been in, in all kinds of different circumstances, and I remember um, la- as recently as last year, I had opportunity to go to a wedding out in Colorado. It was up in the mountains, and the couple that was getting married um, arrived and I look around at all of the people there, and I'm wearing a tie, but what I see around me is a bunch of bolo ties. Now, I love bolo ties. And my, I'm not here today to knock it, but, but understand this. If you were to try to wear a bolo tie, that's that little string tie, by the way. Does everybody know what I'm talking about? I'm getting confused looks. Okay, the little string tie with the little notch on there. I don't know what it's called. I should have looked it up. But anyway, it's called a bolo tie, and if you were to wear one of those to a black tie event, you would be out of place. And likewise, if you were to wear a tuxedo to the wedding that I went to last year in Colorado, you would have been out of place. See, what's appropriate for one was not appropriate for the other. Or perhaps better, perhaps better put, the expectations of one were very different than the expectations of the other. And the question that's in front of us as we come to this 
text today as Paul begins to unpack for us how the gospel of Jesus Christ begins to affect the way that we treat one another, particularly those who claim the faith of Christianity and how it is that we're supposed to interact with each other. The question that he's answering is this, how do we handle differences of our expectations? How do we handle differences in our conscience? How do we handle the things that seem to crop up and pop up in the lives of believers where you might hold a different conviction, have a different expectation than another brother or sister in Christ? And if you remember where we left off, Paul had given a brief recap of how Christ had saved him, how he'd been, uh, how he'd been transformed by the gospel, and ultimately how he had brought the gospel to the Galatians. And his goal in all of that was to begin to remind the Galatian Christians of the things that they had abandoned. He wanted to prove to them, he wanted to prove to them in no uncertain terms that Christ alone was sufficient for their salvation. That there was nothing they could add to the work of Jesus Christ or to the person of Jesus Christ to contribute to their own salvation or to assure their own salvation. Their salvation was provided and assured by the finished work of Jesus Christ alone. And what Paul is essentially doing in this text today is calling witnesses to the stand who could attest to the veracity of that claim. He wanted the believers in Galatia to see that the gospel he had proclaimed to them and the gospel they had originally believed was not a gospel of his own fabrication. It wasn't something that he had invented. This was a true gospel given to him by Christ and affirmed by the apostles. And in the story that Paul shares here, he's not only giving evidence for his claim of the sufficiency of Christ, but he's showing us the two sides of how the gospel of grace ought to play out in the life of a believer. Namely, first, not forcing your own personal convictions on someone else. And second, how to extend grace to those who disagree. Nothing controversial in there. And we pick up beginning in verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure that I was not running or had not run in vain. Now remember the history that's going into this text. Paul was an ethnic Jew. He had been raised in Judaism. He'd been born in the tribe of Benjamin, a priestly tribe. He was a devoted Pharisee. He had the first five books of the Old Testament memorized by heart. He was an interpreter of the law and a teacher of the law. He describes himself as being a zealous Pharisee. He was passionate about what he believed. He was so passionate, in fact, that he had devoted himself to hunting down, imprisoning, or killing those who disagreed with the teachings of Judaism. And in miraculous fashion, he was saved by Jesus Christ when the resurrected Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus. His whole life up to that moment had been been spent in service to the law of the Old Testament. But upon encountering the gospel of Jesus Christ, he goes on his missionary journey. He begins to proclaim faith in the one true Jesus Christ, the true Messiah, the fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecies. He proclaims Jesus to the Gentiles. He sees Gentiles converted to Christianity. And now Paul says, I need to make sure that everything that I'm preaching is exactly what is true and right and nothing else. Paul is saying in this moment, I want to make sure that what I'm proclaiming to people as the only true means of salvation is in fact accurate because the last thing I want to do is live my life in a vain way. 
I don't want to waste my time and I don't want to waste the time of other people and I don't want to mislead anybody. And so he went to the pastors and the apostles in Jerusalem and he said, hey, I want you to check what I'm saying. Hear what it is that I'm preaching to these Gentiles and let me know if it all seems right. And he shared his gospel, his gospel view to them. He laid it all out before them. And even in that, this is very instructive about how we as Christians ought to approach our faith. Because even Paul's boldness, his boldness even in correcting the Galatian church, is not informed by arrogance. It's informed by humility. He doesn't come to them and say, don't you know who I am? Haven't you heard the stories about me? How dare you question the gospel that I proclaim to you? How dare you question me? No, he says, the gospel that I'm proclaiming to you, I went to such great lengths to make sure was accurate and true and fair and right, so much so that I laid aside any ego that I might have because of my name, and I laid forward the message that I had before the, the elders and the, and the apostles in Jerusalem just to hear them say that my message was, in fact, true. See, Paul is not offended on a personal level by their drift away from the gospel. His concern is that they've wandered to begin with. And it's hard for us when people begin to attack or question our faith, isn't it? Maybe you've got family, maybe family that you saw as recently as this last week, where you know, even as you're sitting across the table from them, that, what they, that they assume that your beliefs in Jesus Christ are ill-founded and foolish, antiquated and silly. And when those conversations come up, maybe it's with family or friends or coworkers, and you hear the questions that come back, it's, it is hard sometimes when you hear the accusations that are made about Christians or about Christianity or about even the existence of God, it is hard sometimes to hear something that we value so dearly attacked. It feels incredibly personal, and it's easy to take it as personal. I read a story as recently as this last week, I think this was two weeks ago that this happened, there was a stir in the news media. A woman named Candace Cameron, you might remember her name from being on the show Full House, and since then she had kind of come out as a believer and she's been fairly outspoken with her faith. She was doing an interview about the fact that she was moving to a new, uh, a new uh, TV network. She had previously done a bunch of shows, the Hallmark Channel, and she was moving to this new network. And the person that was interviewing her had asked if the new network or her new shows were going to portray same-sex marriages. And her answer was simply this, and I'm quoting, I think that this network will keep traditional marriage at the core. And for making that simple statement, she was excoriated as being a bigot, as being dangerous, as being narrow-minded, as being a threat to the safety of other people. See, the lesson in that is this. When you humbly kindly share what the Bible declares as true, even in a way that is as inoffensive as possible. And when you are criticized, questioned, or challenged by the world for saying it, understand that their real issue is not with you, it's with God. The real issue that they have is with what the Word of God says, with what God declares is true. And when you can begin to understand that, it will allow you, like Paul, to continue to love those who would declare themselves to be your enemy. 
In other words, how is it that we can follow the biblical instruction to love those who persecute, who persecute us and to love our enemies if we take every attack as being personal? Well, we can't. But when we understand that the true aim of that criticism and the true aim of that threat is not ultim- does not ultimately end with us, but ends with Christ himself, we're able then to, in some sense or another, understand and detach ourselves from the personal sentiment of it. It allows us to be humble, even in our evangelism, even when mistreated. As one theologian said, let the gospel be the only thing that is offensive about you. And to be able to humbly say, this is what I believe, according to what the Bible teaches, to the best of my ability to understand it, is an incredibly freeing and empowering thing. Notice then what he says. Verse 3. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Now this sentence, pulled out of its context, is striking to us because this is language that we don't typically hear in in a modern uh, conversation. But understand what's happening here. In other words, the the apostles said to Paul, Paul, what you've been preaching is entirely consistent with the gospel that we know. It's the same gospel that Jesus Christ, whom we were with for three years, was proclaiming and teaching and declaring to us. It's the gospel that we know and the gospel we love. The gospel that you're proclaiming to the Gentiles is the very same gospel that we are proclaiming to the Jews. And the purpose of the law was never to provide our salvation, It was to show us how incapable we were of pleasing God in our own flesh. That it's only the gospel of grace that can save. And as an indicator that these Jewish men had had embraced the exclusive claims of salvation through Christ alone, Paul specifies that Titus, who who was with him, who was a believer in Christ, was not forced to be circumcised. Now remember that in the Old Testament, God had established Israel as a set-apart holy people. He had declared that they belonged to him, that they were marked, that they were set aside. He had given them a sign of that covenant relationship, which was that their sons ought to be circumcised. It was a way to set them apart from their unbelieving neighbors. It was a way to set apart the people of God and to indicate that they were part of his covenant people. But now, a group of Judaizers, in other words, people who had been of the Jewish faith, who now claimed Christianity, were trying to blend the two. They were trying to take that Old Testament law and they were trying to build it into Christianity and declare that while Jesus is great and Jesus is necessary and Jesus, of course, is a very important piece of our salvation, but you also must obey these Old Testament laws up to and including men who converted being circumcised. So they're saying, yes, Jesus is the way to salvation, but you also need to observe the law. And Paul is pointing out that neither he nor the Christian leaders in Jerusalem, which included men like James and Peter, that none of them were requiring this of Titus, who was traveling with him. Why? Because, as Dave said last week, to add anything to the gospel of grace is to undermine the necessity of Christ. And this brings up for us a nuanced but necessary conversation for Christians. And the question that we need to ask ourselves as we read this is this, to what extent should we try to accommodate those whose consciences differ from us? To what extent should we try to accommodate those 
whose consciences differ from us. Because I think the principle that Paul is laying out here is that there is, there is a difference between laying down your Christian freedom, the spiritual freedom that you've been given through Christ, where, where you are not required to obey any law in order to obtain salvation because it's been done for you. There is a difference between laying down that freedom and having your freedom taken away. So here's what I mean. In Titus's case, and we see it in this chapter in Galatians 2, you can read more about it in Titus chapter 1, there were all sorts of people who were pressing on Titus to become circumcised. The people in his church and around him, the people in the congregation were coming to him and saying, Titus, it's so great that you began to believe in Jesus Christ, but now in order to show your devotion, in order to show that you really love Christ, in order to show that you really belong to him, in order to, in order to assure yourself that you actually have his favor, you need to take the next step and, and become circumcised. All of these people in his life were clamoring trying to take away the God-given, Christ-provided freedom that had been given to Titus. And Paul, both in this text and in Titus chapter 1, makes it clear when he tells Titus that he ought not be circumcised for the sake of the people who were requiring it of him. Why? Because to do so in that case would be to compromise the gospel. For Titus to to give in and be circumcised would have been an indicator to everyone who is there that Titus agrees with us. See, even Titus, in converting from his Gentile faith to Christian faith, followed through with circumcision in order to demonstrate his sincerity and, and assure himself of God's favor. And so, therefore, Paul tells Titus in no uncertain terms, you may not do that. Because to, to buckle under to the demands of somebody else when they are trying to add to the faith of the gospel of grace is to compromise the gospel of grace. But then we have another example in Acts chapter 16 with the young pastor Timothy. I'll read that for you, Acts 16, beginning in verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him, listen, and circumcised him because of the Jews that were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, if you're paying attention to Galatians 2 and Titus chapter 1, it should strike you that after being so insistent that Titus ought not be circumcised, Paul himself actually circumcises Timothy. And here's the difference. Paul was saying to Timothy, look, Timothy, you're going to be ministering primarily among Jews. And more than that, they know that you're not Jewish. They know who your father is. And so perhaps as a means of not alienating these people to whom you're trying to minister, maybe you should go and be circumcised. Now, all of this talk of circumcision is strange for us, right? But it's it's odd for us to consider this in our context, but, but think, of it, think of it in these terms. This would be the equivalent today of a couple becoming missionaries to an Arab country and a woman covering her head. Now, does she need to cover her head to be accepted by God? Of course not. She has Christian freedom, but she might be willing to lay that freedom down for the sake of not being a distraction of the, to the gospel that she's trying to proclaim to non-believing Muslims. 
And this is the idea behind what Paul ultimately says to us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning in verse 19. For though I am free from all, though there is no Old Testament law claim on my life, things that I need to obey in order to earn my salvation, though I am free for all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, those are Gentiles, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you understand the magnitude of what Paul just declared in that text? Paul just said, I am not going to allow myself to be defined by any one cultural standard, expectation, or conviction. I will do whatever is necessary so long as I do not compromise the gospel to see that gospel spread. So if I'm ministering to Jews... I will set aside my Christian freedom and I will observe things that the Jews potentially observe for the sake of serving them well so long as I don't compromise the gospel. And when I go to the Gentiles, I'll eat the food that the Gentiles eat even though it violates my Jewish ethnic conscience potentially or at least his background for the sake of winning Gentiles. To the weak, I became weak. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not as if I was outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I may celebrate, rejoice with them in the gospel's blessings. So the question practically for us becomes this. How do we know when we should lay down our Christian freedoms or when we should defend them? Verse 4. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, those are the Judaizers into the congregation, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. See, the Judaizers had changed the purpose of the sign of circumcision. They were no longer just recognizing the covenant of God with the people of Israel. What they were saying is Jesus is great and if you really want to love him and you really want to follow him, you need to be circumcised as well. And to do that, according to Paul, to submit even for a moment to the convictions or demands of others in this case, he was unwilling to do because it would have been to, to abuse or twist the gospel. So when we encounter people who have weaker consciences than us, and you can read more about that and you ought to read more about that in Romans chapter 14, when you, cro- when you come across a brother or sister in Christ who has a weaker conscience, meaning they are easily offended by things that the gospel doesn't necessarily prohibit, when you come across someone like that who might observe or decline from certain things in their own life around which you might feel a sense of God-given freedom, how should we as loving brothers and sisters interact with them? 
And I think the principle that we need to consider is this. Does giving in to their opinion or their conviction undermine the sufficiency of the gospel? So to use Timothy and Titus as an example, Paul says, Timothy, if you can give up your freedom for the sake of more effectively proclaiming the true gospel of Jesus Christ, feel free to lay those freedoms down. But to Titus, he says, since those people are saying that you have to be circumcised in order to be accepted by God, under no circumstances should you be circumcised. Why? Because to acquiesce would have been to undermine the sufficiency of the gospel. So brother and sister, as you go throughout your life, it would be worth asking yourself, what freedoms might God ask me to lay down for the sake of more effectively loving those around me? And likewise, what Christian freedoms should I refuse to give up because to do so would communicate that salvation is dependent on something other than Christ alone? Likewise, You have not been called, says Paul, to enforce your own personal convictions or issues of conscience on someone else. This is the flip side, verse six. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So now think about this from the context of these influential Jewish Christians, namely Peter and James and John. Paul comes to them and has this whole conversation about the gospel, and and Paul says here, they didn't add anything to my message of the gospel of grace. They didn't add any demands to what I was saying. In other words, these influential Jewish Christians found out that Paul and his Gentile friend Titus had been given the role of taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And when they heard that, they immediately put aside any cultural differences that they might have taken with Paul and Titus and instead embraced them as brothers. In fact, the only thing the Jewish believers asked of Paul is that he remember to care for the poor. And in that narrative, we find such a beautiful description of gospel graciousness. These Jewish Christians were able to set aside their expectations of their own culture. They were able to set aside their own personal experiences and their own personal opinions and even their own personal issues of conscience, convictions, that were perhaps given that to them or perhaps were, were a demonstration of the conscience they had because of the culture in which they grew up but were not demanded by Scripture. They were able to put those things aside and say, if you believe, proclaim, and defend the same gospel as us, you are our brother. See, this is a call to gospel unity. 
and understand that gospel unity ultimately does not believe that we, be, that we have the same opinion on every issue as every other Christian brother or sister in the world. But what it means is that on the central, most important pieces, we believe the same. It's what allows us to stand shoulder to shoulder with brothers and sisters of other nations and cultures and denominations so long as they proclaim the gospel of grace through Jesus Christ alone. And it's what allows us to be able to graciously bless them as fellow laborers. And the lesson we find is that your ability to extend grace to others reveals the extent to which you understand grace. When there is something that rises up within you, a sense of anger, frustration, disappointment, judgment. When you come across a brother or sister who looks, acts, or thinks differently on secondary or tertiary issues than how you believe, it reveals to some extent or another a lack of graciousness in our own hearts. None of us has been given the call to take the role of the Holy Spirit in someone else's life because you can't change hearts. And none of us has been given the role to try to force others into our opinion and belief system in areas around which the Bible is silent. Now, I'm not talking about issues where the Bible is explicit and where doctrine is clear. I'm talking about issues where the Bible is silent or where Christians may differ in their reading or their application. And this is where the Christian life requires wisdom and grace. Wisdom, as we've talked about before, and I don't know to whom I should attribute this quote, wisdom is knowing what to do in the 90% of life that the Bible does not address. And grace, which in this context means presuming the best about others and humbly admitting that my own conscience can't be the ultimate judge of what other Christians choose to do. So for instance... You may have a personal conviction about drinking alcohol, or you may have no issue with it whatsoever. You may believe that it's best to educate your children via homeschool or private school or public school. We all likely in this room have different lines about what movies or music we're comfortable watching or listening to. We may have different standards or opinions about what defines modest apparel or appropriate dress in a particular application. There may be particular political issues where we disagree. I'm not thinking about things that the Bible's explicit about, like sexuality or abortion, which are ultimately issues of biblical truth and not political persuasion, but those secondary political differences. And when we fail to recognize that those things are secondary to the gospel, it is poison to the church. It creates opportunity for subjective, moralistic standards to grow and ultimately choke out the gospel when we take our own opinions based on our unique upbringings and experiences and convictions and assume that what is right for us is necessary for everyone. It allows those with the weakest consciences and the loudest voices to hold others as spiritual hostages. And listen, it creates an environment that promotes hypocrisy where people live one way at home but 
but put up a facade when they're around Christian brothers and sisters. And the church, the people with whom God intended us to be the most vulnerable and open, now becomes a place where we would be least likely to share something of importance for fear of being rejected or judged. So here are some things that I think can be helpful, some diagnostic questions as you think about how to apply these standards in your own life. When someone else does something that you don't like, maybe when they say something in a way that makes you bristle or they admit to doing something that isn't a violation of the word but is outside of the realm of what you would personally be comfortable with, is your tendency to think the worst of them, to judge them internally or communicate externally your disapproval? Is your tendency to think or talk badly about someone who holds to a different standard of conscience than you on a particular issue? Do you feel the need to always interject your opinion or set someone straight when they do something you wouldn't feel comfortable doing? And perhaps the most revealing, are you the sort of person whom others feel comfortable confessing to Or are you the sort of person whom others might avoid if they were struggling for fear of what you might say or do? Do you extend that sort of grace and communicate that sort of approachableness? See, our hope as Disciples Church, as imperfect and sinful believers is that we would be the sort of place where we are never shocked by the depth of someone's sin, but where we would always and continually be amazed at the extent to which God is willing to go to extend his grace. Our hope, brothers and sisters, is that we would be the sort of place where we have an ability to commune with those who may be different than us. And there is no place in which we see that demonstrated more than in the Lord's table. Because in the Lord's table, and you find this when you read 1 Corinthians chapter 11, what you see is an opportunity to recognize that we are first and foremost united by the blood of Jesus Christ. That we have a unity in and through him and him alone. That we have been made part of a new family. A family that at points may look dysfunctional or may have issues or may argue, but a family nonetheless. And so in part, when we come to this table, our hope, biblically speaking, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, is that we would be able to extend grace one to another in the same way that grace has been extended to us by our Savior. Because when we come to the Lord's table, that is what we are participating in. We are partaking of the wine or the juice, which is symbolic of the blood of Jesus Christ. An identification with his family, a realization that the God of the universe stepped into time to save wicked and sinful people like you and I. That we now have perfect, unbroken communion, direct access to the throne room of God, And likewise, we have communion with brothers and sisters. 
we have that because of what Christ did for us, that his blood was shed and his body was given. And so in light of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in a moment we're going to take communion, and what I'm going to ask you to do is take a few minutes to be still and to be silent, and I'm going to ask you to do something just a little bit different today, which is consider your relationship with other believers. Consider the areas in your own heart, in your own mind, where you might be nursing a grudge. That frustration or that disappointment that has now begun to turn into bitterness. And to be willing to confess that. And then ultimately to deal with it face to face, if necessary, with another brother or sister. Because when we come to this table, we want to be able to come in full recognition of what it is we're participating in. So we're going to pray. We're going to take a couple minutes to be silent and to be still. And then when you hear the music begin, you can begin making your way up. I'm going to ask everybody to do something a little bit different today, which is I'm going to ask you to all come down, um, come down this aisle right here. We're only going to have one person with the bread and one person with the wine and juice. So if everybody can make their way down this aisle, I realize it's a hike for some of you. If you're able physically to do that, I'd appreciate it. And then to return back out this side so that we can kind of make one continuous flow. But please wait until the music starts to do that. And then please hold off on taking those elements until we can take them together as a body, brothers and sisters together. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have been so incredibly gracious with us. God, you know our hearts. You know the issues around which we struggle. You know where we have idols. And you know where judgment rules. And God, in both those circumstances, I pray, God, that you would, would help us to understand that you have asked us, you have not asked us, rather, to be the Holy Spirit in the lives of other people, but that we would graciously and gently proclaim truth. So God, when we're talking about issues of first importance, when we're talking about biblical issues, gospel issues, issues around which doctrine is clear in your word, would you help us to be bold and unapologetic? And God, in those issues that are secondary or even tertiary, issues where we may have legitimate disagreement with one another, would you cause us to be gracious in our interactions? We're not pretending that those differences don't exist. But what we're asking, God, is that you would allow us and cause us to be gracious and gentle and humble in our treatment of those issues so that the gospel is not affected. God, help us to be bold and truthful and to be gracious and gentle so that we can properly communicate who you are in our lives. And as we come to this table, would you help us to remember what it is that we are participating in the shed blood of Christ and the body given for us so that we can have communion with you and with one another. And we thank you for all these things and it's in your name we pray, amen.